0: need to check this stuff out people need to check this stuff out have you heard of 5g you know the wireless network that everyone's talking about well i'm here to set the record straight with five facts the <laughs> We, we don't want to be experimented on. They're not. It's in over five thousand cities and towns. It's in over five thousand cities and towns.
1: We don't want to be experimented on. They're not doing the proper safety study.
0: Because if you're not,
1: are beginning to associate it with uh, development of
0: cancer. Mm-hmm. Some of the frequencies uh, can make your skin feel like it's a really fire. People need to check this stuff out. People need to check this stuff out. People need we to check to this stuff out. They're
1: not doing the proper safety stuff. We don't want to be experimented on. They're not... Hello friends and enemies, it's episode 22 of This Machine Kills, I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy as always and uh, today we're gonna be building on and riffing on this really great and in-depth essay by Evgeny Morozov, um, someone that we constantly go back to and refer to on the show. I mean, he was a huge influence when Ed and I were both kind of coming up and even thinking about technology, but he wrote a real kind of like classic Morozov essay on the geopolitics of Huawei, which is just like such an important topic for understanding that real like materialist, infrastructural, political aspect of something like 5G. Uh, so really, kind of giving us this angle into five G that I feel like has been largely like kind of lost in the wash, right? Like lost in the wash of uh, of, of conspiracies, uh, whether valid or not, uh, of um, you know concerns around the health and COVID, like all this stuff. We really have to get into. That, that real materialist analysis of, of who is Huawei? What is Huawei, this company? And to, to get on that, though, we also need to get more historical, which is something where, uh, you know, as, as Ed and I were reading this, this essay by Morozov, which is called The Huawei War, and um, the English version was published in Le Monde Diplomatique, which is Le Mans, the big French newspaper's uh, English Kind of website or English magazine. As we were reading Morozov's take on the geopolitics of, of this Huawei war, uh, it's, it's very like presentist, right? It's very much looking at like kind of contemporary developments and issues and ongoing geopolitical strife over Huawei and over 5G and tel- telecoms and all that. But there's like this long history of huawei as a company that's really glossed over really quickly moved past and so ed and i kind of saw this 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 opening here it's like that's a history that's really important and it tells us a lot about how uh these telco infrastructures have been developing who's been developing them for what reasons and how, and how that's kind of projecting forward into the future. So, you know, again, kind of adding that historicism to the materialism as we like to do here. In our um, free episode for this week, we're really gonna focus on this question of what is Huawei? Where did this company come from? And it's a really interesting history. And, you know, just, just kind of a teaser Uh, You know, as we do the second part of this uh, this deep dive into Huawei in the Patreon feed we will really focus even more so on those questions of like, why does it matter and what's coming next um, in this kind of 5G infrastructure geopolitical fight. Just to give us a little bit of a foundation to to land on, a lot of what's happening in 5G is really this battleground over the patents for 5G, over the intellectual property for 5G. As we'll get into, 5G is what is going to make something like the Internet of Things possible. Right now, Cisco's projecting that the number of devices connected to the Internet, uh, it's growing every year. And by twenty twenty five. Three, Cisco is saying that there will be 14.7 billion devices globally that are somehow networked, connected together. I mean, so that's multiple devices for every single person on, in the world. And, and obviously, there's a lot of geographical concentration in where those devices are. And so the need for developing the communication infrastructure and standards and protocols for all that is Massive. I mean, to the point where the, these communication technologies are kind of fueling revenue growth, as we've talked about in previous episodes, with the tech sector being this kind of main engine of the S&P 500 index, of the health of the economy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a lot of revenue growth here. And according to data from IHS Market, which is a market analyst firm, the 5G value chain uh, will drive by 2035, $3.6 trillion in economic output, which just is such an insane number to wrap our head around. But at the battle over who's going to claim those, not only uh, the biggest slice of the pie, but who's going to bake that pie? Who's going to own that pie? Who's going to be the one doling out slices of that economic pie to other people? There's this huge battle going on between these telecom companies, largely Huawei in China, and then uh, Ericsson and Nokia in Europe, right? Notably, no major US competitor, um, which also gets into a lot of why Huawei is itself even a controversial company. That's a little bit of our foundation
0: that we'll be building on. Facts about 5G. This piece Morozov starts in, you know, 1990s, which is not when Huawei starts, but it is an important period that still leaves out some of the stuff that we want to get to, right? You know, Morozov's piece is talking about the geopolitics, the geoeconomics and the core of that beginning with a meeting between the founder of um, of Huawei and uh, a conversation uh, that he had with uh, China's um, you know then general secretary of the Communist Party, um, but I think that there is some insight to be had in going over Huawei's history, if not because um, this is a huge. Um, firm, a private firm inside of a a country where state-owned enterprises are prioritized, private firm that has gained billions of dollars in support, closed military uh, contacts, massive international pushes, um, um, penetration of markets in the United States and in Europe. To understand it better and its history and how it got to the point where it is today, will go a long way in helping us figure out fault lines inside of the global economy that might have supported it and will try to complicate its rise and will fail or succeed, right? And that will help us also figure out ways that we can do resistance or think about resistance um, at various levels in the United States, right? You know, So Morozov's piece starts in, in 94, right? And Huawei at that point is a very small manufacturer in Shenzhen in southern China. Um, it's selling switches, which are basically you know t- switches for telephone networks, specifically for the landline networks that you know regulate uh, flow of information from consumer to an, some endpoint, right, or to an end user to another point. Also, a shout out to Masayoshi san because you know this is the same game that he was playing in Japan, right, where he was trying to break a monopoly, by, uh, among a Nippon a telecom giant, right, in Tokyo that had a monopoly on telephone switches. So its founder, Ren uh, Ren Zhengfei. Um, you know, he's a former engineer with the People's Liberation Army, right? And he's meeting with then like the vice premier of industry, in addition to a little bit later, the general secretary of the the Communist Party, the leader at the time. Um, And he warns him that, quote, switching equipment technology was related to national security, and that a nation that did not have its own switching equipment... Was like one that lacked its own military. Uh, so Mornoz writes about this, you know, that the technology in question today is 5G, and it is Huawei's equipment that they regard as a danger to their national uh, security. Um, they being the United States. You know, in this early section, right, he establishes that you know Huawei is a company. You know, it's kind of strange. Like I said, there's a it's a private you know it's a private company that views equity markets and you know public markets as greedy. Um, it has a rotating leadership structure. Um, And it emphasizes, quote, indigenous innovation as a means of lessening China's dependence on imperialist foreign firms. It operates in 170 countries, has nearly 200,000 employees. As we've talked about, it owns a large chunk of the patents for 5G, and as a result, has driven and, de- and helped innovate uh, the development of this standard uh, since 2009, not only internally, right, but externally. It over uh, China and you know, Huawei have had success in that they've had representation on these standardization bodies, which we've talked about before in a previous episode, right? Uh, it's overtaken Samsung is the world's largest seller. Of smartphones, something that may not be sustainable because the large part of that uh, amount of that growth came from domestic sales or a domestic increase in sales. But that's something that we can also talk about later. Also, you know, was uh, owned the Kirin chip, which is you know a microchip designed in-house that allowed it to create its own closed system, essentially of uh, smartphones and other smart tech with advanced artificial intelligence capabilities. So Huawei enjoyed a pretty uh, seemingly stable supply chain, access to really advanced technologies, huge support from the Chinese state, also was beating out uh, competitors that were more traditionally aligned with Western imperatives, you know, or had ascended because of Western patronage in one way or another, right? You know, Huawei also um, is interesting because it spends huge amounts of its uh, profits it's on uh, R&D and has consistently spent about 10% or more. You know, in 2019, that is well over uh, $15 billion, uh, which is more than Amazon spends. It's more than Microsoft spends. Uh, in 2020, it's likely to hit $20 billion despite the COVID-19 crisis, right? You know, and mm. for comparison, right, Microsoft points to the German car industry, which spends $30 billion, um, in uh, 2018 on R and D, right
1: now, yeah, and that's mm-hmm. that's the whole German car industry. Right. Yeah, so we're talking. Uh, uh, yeah, one company is spending over half the amount on R&D that the entire German car industry, which is always held up as being like, you know, that's the gold standard for cars. That's, they're the
0: innovators, right? That is the core Uh, of that global market, right?
1: Yeah, so just really underline that important point there. Devoting 10% of their budget or or of their profits on R&D is just like, so unheard of right that's like so anathema to the way that like silicon valley conducts r&d right it's a, it's it's like so opposed to the model um that like yeah we tend to think of as tech companies don't really do r&d to that level anymore right um cuz they they're like so focused on squeezing profits out of doing shit basically and calling it right. innovation whereas right. Huawei is just like pumping tons of money into actually uh, producing new hardware which also flies in the face of so much of silicon valley which is so focused on like software right software as a service and that we talked about this in the last episode on Enduro that that was that's Enduro's kind of selling point to the military industrial complex is that they are a software first company mm-hmm. um, and all of their hardware is just basically like scrabble together from off the shelf. And, and so Huawei is like a really old school approach um, to, to thinking about how to do innovation as like industrial policy.
0: And I think, yeah, that's key. You know, industrial policy is really integral here. Their threads that have made Huawei successful are such that, you know, as Morozov writes, uh, quote, China was long confined to the role of a workshop assembling other countries' products. The words made in China, designed in California, found on the back of every Apple device are humiliating reminder of this. Huawei's progress suggests a new era is dawning in which that slogan could finally be upgraded to designed in China, made in Vietnam. Right. All is to say China's ascension uh, radically complicates pursuit of American hegemony, right, of American dominance of Earth and its economy. If you have Huawei at the center of the telecommunications glo- uh, network globally, you find it a much harder to spy on your allies, uh, to in any way, shape, or form, regulate the flow of information to allies or to protectorates. And you're also finding this difficulty with a country that, you know, when people talk about China not sharing our values, it's usually in a, some sort of, um, you know, rabid sign of, uh, you know, phobic, uh, you know, sense where they're just saying like, oh, they're not white, you know, they're like, a, they're not like us. A different thing, a different way to just think about it is that like the United States wants the United States to rule the world. And the United States wants the United States to have unimpeded access and control over the resources and the information and the, and the flow of goods and services in the world, right? It does not want Britain doing it. It does not want France doing it. It does not want Germany doing it. And it definitely does not want China doing it, right? If Mm -hmm. Britain, France, and Germany tried to do it, they wouldn't be able to do it. But if they did it, they would try to do it in a way that would, in some shape or form, bring in the American system, right? Because the American system has is something that they're they're, they've scaffolded off of, right? You know, they've existed as a protector, or a partner, or an ally. Um, That is not the case with China, right? And that is not to say there's some inherent antagonism. That's simply to just say that Western planners understand they want to rule the world, right? So it doesn't really matter what else China wants. China presumably would not want to just be ruled by the United States, as most countries do not, if they have the chance to. They don't have the chance to. Only China really has is in a position to challenge America's assumed right to, to dominate the globe. And that is a key part of where this conflict comes in, because the, the, there's a conflict over who gets to rule the world. And then there's a conflict over who actually has the capacity to do it. You know, no one really does at this point anymore. But also the United States doesn't even really have the capacity to maintain its position, uh, as we'll talk about with uh, the telecommunications system as one front of this war.
1: You know, just kind of laying the, the battlefield out right now, the, the, you know, large debate over 5G needs to be understood as this proxy battle Um, this proxy war for this geopolitical and geo-economic struggle um, where the U.S. by having no 5G alternative of its own uh, symbolizes this kind of real and metaphoric slumber at the wheel, right? They are the sleeping giant and they're starting to wake up and they're realizing that uh, this is an area where they don't have that kind of hegemony by default. This is an area where China is really growing as um, the hegemonic uh, next generation industrial center. You know, there's so much of the debate around 5G ignores all of that, um, and I and I think it's very much a detriment, right? Because on one hand, it's not talking about these kind of like geopolitical strifes that are under underlying it, but it's also not talking about uh, the real kind of techno political and techno economic. Um, flow on effects outcomes that would come from having a world uh, rife with 5g no matter who 's doing it if it 's China or the u s right and it 's definitely not something that the companies that the telecom companies want to get into or make a part of the kind of uh, public understanding of these technological developments i mean i've, I've said i 've said in the past um, elsewhere that you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if all of the uh, kind of anti-anti-5G, uh, mm-hmm. you know, discourse, you know, we've got Bill Nye talking about how 5G is super healthy and actually there's no, you know, it's, <laughs> actually, it's not only that it. there's no health effects, <laughs> it's actually super healthy for you, man. No. Promotes so, hair you know. growth,
0: nail growth,
1: you know, <laughs> testosterone levels.
0: It's in over 5,000 cities and towns right now. That's a lot of access. And,
1: you know, you've got all the people that are, you know, painting, uh, 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 you know, all the anti-5G activists as just like kind of Luddites or, or you know, stupid or ignorant. And, I mean, to be sure, like... Uh, A lot of the kind of discourse, anti-5G discourse also gets trapped into this well of looking at the exact wrong things and asking the exact wrong questions. But that like basically confines the discourse to being one about um, either being pro-progress, which means being pro-5G and pro-these developments, or being uh, backwards, primitive, anti-progress, which means, you know, which is all anti-5G or all even criticism of 5G uh, is, is thrown into that that abyss. And Some
0: of the frequencies uh, can make your skin feel like it's burning, like it's on fire.
1: I wouldn't, I'm not gonna say that it's like a false flag by the telco companies, <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly is benefiting them in the exact same way as if they were actually like astroturfing all the anti 5G. If
0: I were the CEO of Verizon, I would do this as a false flag. <laughs> you
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. If I were the CEO of Verizon, I would look at all the. Uh, all the really dumb anti-5G concerns and be like, that's awesome, because that means all criticism of our technology is already shoved into a box of being primitive and stupid.
0: It's close range exposure to microwave radiation. Because if your wireless signal doesn't travel through walls, it's not nearly as useful.
1: I I, I mean, a big part of understanding the history of Huawei is understanding uh, how we need to break our critique and our analysis of 5g, but even just the development of telco, of, of the telco industry in general, uh, break it outside of that box and take a much wider view and a, a, a longer view
0: of it so Huawei is founded in one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight by run right and, and he 's a former director of the Information engineering academy of the uh, people 's Liberation Army. Specifically, the General Staff Department, right? So he's the head of telecom research for the Chinese military. He leaves in 1984. Uh, he works for a state-owned enterprise, uh, Shenzhen Electronics Corporation, and then four years uh, later, right? He gets a uh, you know 70 million renminbi, uh loan, so about you know eight and a half million at the time, uh, to found Huawei with you know more than a dozen of his own colleagues. Huawei from then becomes a reseller, right, of imported telecoms equipment and uses its ability to, you know, or uses the, the fact that it's a reseller to reverse engineer a lot of this technology, right? So reverse engineers imported switching devices, network equipment, uses this to create unique or new Huawei branded equipment. And this comes at, this couldn't have come at a more perfect time because at the same time that Huawei is founded and... And working on reverse engineering, right? The PLA is trying to find a partner to help provide equipment for the first national telecoms network. That's the People's Liberation Army, PLA. And, you know, so this is the first major contract for Huawei, right? And becomes integral to its waves of expansion because the connections that it gets through the PLA or the goodwill that is fostered through there, also the past connections that Ren had when he was the head of telecom research for the, uh, for the PLA essentially, right? Allow for them to, over the next few years, but especially in 1996, massively expand home and abroad, right? So, 1996 is a very important year. For Huawei, right? That's the year that Beijing announces very specifically um, a policy to support domestic telecom uh, industry, right? As a way to cut off and preempt foreign penetration of the markets, and Huawei's contract with the PLA positions it to be one of the key developmental projects, right? It is supported as a national champion, right? Even though there are other established firms like a local rival, local Shenzhen rival ZTE, which you know becomes. Very, very important in the modern day, you know, ZTE is more established, uh, more well known at the point at this point than uh, Huawei. But Huawei is favored over them. becomes one of the key twenty six projects in the city. Right, the city supports it with funds. The city supports it with loans. Uh, specifically, it engages in a program where it extends credit to firms who are trying to buy Huawei products. Um, right, so Shenzhen Development Bank which is the, and the local uh, uh, branch of the China construction bank are giving loans to a company that says, I want Huawei's products, give them to me. Uh, But also they're giving these loans, or they're also extending credit to Huawei, right? Because that's, you know, sometimes these firms simply just don't pay them back, right? So either way, they're ensuring that Huawei stays afloat by getting money. And this continues to build, right? The company is given another 50 million uh, renminbi uh, loan to develop GSM, which is one part of the uh, 2G standards network, right? It's a mobile phone technology standard. Uh, Thanks to, you know, the then vice premier overseeing uh, national industry, Wu Bagu. Um, And in one report, Wu says, you know, at present, this is a monopoly of foreign companies. I suggest that Huawei make a new breakthroughs in the mobile arena. So Huawei is in good position here. It's got its first core major contract with the PLA. It's gotten the designation as a key development project. It's gotten support and funds and extensions and lines of credits. Uh, so then it, it facilitates all of that into, or leverages all of that into its first major overseas contract, which is with Hong Kong's Hutchinson Telecom network, right? And that's run by Lee Kashing, who's you know is part of this, you know business empire owns a business empire. He's a pro uh, Beijing uh, tycoon in Hong Kong. You know, so that year, right? It's got these two contracts. The next year, it then launches its GSM-equipped components, and it launches the contract with uh, the Hong Kong uh, telecom company, right? And Wu praises this, in a quote he says. By breaking the monopoly of Western companies and strengthening the creative capabilities of the Chinese people, Huawei has made a heartening achievement. From here, you, get, you start to see even more expansion. In 97, right, it doesn't enter the United States, but it enters a partnership um, and it, a deal with Texas Instruments and 3 right, where... Huawei is allowed to develop their Chinese market products. Then Lucent, then Intel, then AT&T, they all begin to let Huawei build out network infrastructure. IBM offers to supply Huawei with network components and software access to research. Motorola offers to integrate its GSM facilities, right? Its 2G facilities with Huawei's even though the understanding is Huawei will just try to replace Motorola's infrastructure. The idea is that if we can cooperate with them, we can stay ahead of them in one way or another, right? You know, and their own chief of network solutions in China says in a quote, we have to stay ahead of the competition from our own partner. Next year, you know they 're in Russia. They have a joint venture with Russia with the Beto Corporation to uh, assemble Huawei switches. The first deal is you know, only twelve dollars, but it grows to a hundred million both uh, with, you know, within a few years by two thousand and one, both because it, it starts to undercut prices um, and it 's undercutting prices by about twelve percent of what international competitors are, but because it 's offering like, not a shoddy service or not a shoddy quality of service for a, a cheaper price. And then from there, the deals just start flowing. Thailand, Brazil, South Africa, it, it ramps up its price cutting strategy, hitting 30% in some of the markets. And as Ren himself says, right? Uh, quote, our government has a successful diplomatic policy with, which mandates winning a lot of international friends. Huawei's international marketing strategy is to follow China's diplomatic route. And I believe the strategy will be successful as well, right? So Wu and Ren traveled to Africa in 2000. And there they lay the ground for deals that are going to happen in the next deal, in the next uh, decade, right? They visit and lay the groundwork for deals in Ethiopia, in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Mauritius, in Morocco, in Congo, and in Kenya, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the, this level of like expansion and this rapid deal making and- and This is only and, in a few years. This is, this is like yeah, only, years
0: the first, only uh, in a
1: few, yeah, like three, four years, they're going global, they're expanding, they're making deals all over the place. Uh, importantly, not just the US, right? But they're going to Russia, they're going to Africa, right? Like they're laying all this groundwork in a a, a way that in, in contemporary times, we would own the only analogy that we would have with this would be like the like the platform companies, right? Like, in a lot of ways, it looks very similar to um, the kind of like rapid expansion and uh, uh, you know scaling up of a company like Uber, for example, right? Where the idea is that you know we're we're going to set up offices all over the place, we're going to drop in, we're going to start up our service, uh, you know, and and and, and rapidly grow. But, but there's a really important difference here is that Huawei was doing this kind of like rapid scaling up uh, and global expansion, not on the back of um, some kind of on just like an app, right? Not on the back of, uh, uh, you know, regulatory arbitrage and, and trapping a bunch of, you know, local workers onto its low pay platform, but they're doing this expansion um, for like hardware. For infrastructure, right? For the kinds of things that the startups that we talk about out of Silicon Valley or out of the tech industry right now, again, the kinds of things that they stay away from even with their hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital that, that they're being invested in, they stay away from something like hardware because it's seen as too difficult, right? Because it's seen as too material, um, because it's seen as not being uh, prone or conducive to this level of rapid scaling, monopolization and return on investment that the uh, uh, VCs demand, um, whereas we've got Huawei in recent history doing exactly that kind of thing, right? Which really I think sets it apart as both um, a kind of uh, a predecessor for 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 all the the kind of second and third tier companies that would try to follow in its in its footsteps in terms of expansion, mm-hmm. but really sets it far and away above in terms of its like focus on on hardware and infrastructure, right? Like, uh, and this is very much the kind of model of like SoftBank and Masayoshi Son. before he started investing in all these platforms. He's still, importantly, he's still investing in platforms as a way to be, to own the infrastructure of these mm. platforms, to own the infrastructure of these services. And so it's really this focus on owning the, the you know, to use a land analogy, it's, it's a focus on owning the land on which everyone else needs to build their
0: business on. Right, and I think a really good contrast here is that in today's environment, infinite quantitative easing, a zero interest rate policy and just loans that are you know free money, massive debt financing, you know um, you you see companies that are also engaged in price cutting, you see companies that have easy access to credit, you do not see a huge amount of firms that are interested in building things and literally building shit, right I think that is like a key thing that sets apart. At various stages of Huawei's history, but also like you know, uh, capitalist experiments between China and the West, right? I mean, this is something I think David Harvey, for example, is really good on hammering home that even you know during when when the 2008 financial crisis happened, what were the responses, right? The response of the West was austerity, right? Begrudging stimulus to bail out private partners, and then an austerity for the masses. And in China, they they just ramped up the fucking <laughs> the fucking faucet, right? Uh, they yeah. uh, ex- they handed out even more money, escalated spending, escalated growing uh, uh, construction and growth of like physical real industries. Um, to still stimulate their local economies. And I think that that's like something that we see even with the firms that is radically different than the American firms, which some of them are material, but a lot of them are like services, just service oriented
1: Yeah, right. I mean, after the crash, right, the the U.S. focused on bailing out the financial industry and then dumping massive amounts of money into the tech industry, but particularly the software industry, right? Software as a service industry. So again, they focused on bailing out fictitious capital um, and then dumping money into a different kind of fictitious capital, right? Whereas uh, you see the... Uh, Yeah, you see China going the other way where they are dumping money into the real economy in terms of like the actual material, real capital of manufacturing and infrastructure. And this is something that, uh, you know, we talked about with Aaron Beninoff as well that like the manufacturing sector in in the modern capitalist economy is the only actual engine of growth, the Mm -hmm. only actual engine of economic prosperity, Mm -hmm. right? And and now that's paying dividends for China, right? It's paying huge dividends that that is where they devoted um, so much of their state support and subsidies and investment into that economy.
0: Right. So then we have with Huawei, right? It's done this first this is its first wave of international push with the visits, which it, with its few contracts with Russia and then in so- uh, Southern um, Asia, right? Um, so now it, re- it continues with its domestic push, right? Domestically, it wins contracts for the, for the national railway system, uh, for the state body that controls infrastructure within the Yellow River Valley, in Beijing, you know, in Guangdong and a host of you know some of the largest and most important provinces and cities in the country, right? That also means more state support, in the form of larger and larger credit extension programs, right? In 1998, the Beijing branch of the China Construction Bank lends Huawei 3.9 billion renminbi, right? It's 45% of all the credit that that bank extended that year, so Huawei is you know there's no signs of stopping in terms of the capital it has access to, and also its own growth, right? Its revenues triple by that point to 993 million dollars. Its net profits rise tenfold to 182 million, and its once and its rival, ZTE, right, has only seen like 25 million dollar profit on 300 million dollars in revenue. More contracts, it means more capital, more capital, right, means that it has even more expansion and more expansion, again, you know, leads to even more contracts, which leads to even more support, which leads to even more capital, right? Even though military contracts are less than 1% of revenue by the year 2000, they're still by their own admission, the most important Contracts that they have, and I think there's one quote from Ren, which is you know just in general a really important one, which says, uh, Huawei was something naive, was somewhat naive to choose telecommunications equipment as its business domain in the beginning. Huawei was not prepared for such an intensified competition when the company was just established. The rivals were internationally renowned companies with assets valued at the tens of billions of dollars. If there had been no government policy to protect. Uh, nationally owned companies, Huawei would no longer exist. And, you know, part of that is just tuning his own t- horn. You know, oh, we did so good, we bested these international companies. But he's also just telling the game there, right? It is the cooperation between the- or cooper- it is the willingness of the state to extend credit to Huawei as part of a, as part of a strategy to root out foreign firms and, and minimize dependence- on foreigners and instead promote, as they said, indigenous firms, indigenous innovation. You know, this is a strategy that yields huge dividends, right? It allows Huawei to challenge firms that had no business being in the same industry with, uh, right, and eventually go on to steal <laughs> their shit, you know, steal their cake uh, in, in <laughs> markets that they had every single competitive advantage in, both legal and illegal, right? Uh, this mm-hmm. is, you know, incredibly important because I think. It's uh, there's also a temptation, as there is with the with uh, Western planners, to just think of like you know Huawei as a puppet of uh, the Chinese state. But again, one it's you know private entity. But two, Ren is like um, Ren understands very clearly what he needs to do and what he what is and isn't able to do. And he has taken care to cultivate these relationships not so that he's beholden to them, but so he has access to capital because that's really what he needs, right? If you have enough yeah. access to capital, you can do anything, as we've seen in our own world.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not as if uh Rin and Huawei are a puppet of the Chinese state, but rather they're a partner with the Chinese state, right? And I think that's an important difference. Um because I mean, you know, to be sure, we do see um, that you know Huawei uh, does things like it cooperates with the police to quell protest, uh it has an active Communist Party branch. Um, there is, you know, a big uh, PR spectacle uh, where they uh, and state officials um, together denounced the Falun Gong after Beijing banned them in 1999, right? And so the, so I think from an outsider's point of view, we would see that as being a puppet of the Chinese state. But in reality, uh, there's... there's great analogies or close analogies, I should say, um, with things that we've already talked about in this ep- on this podcast, even in just the last episode. Right. Like these are all things that like Anduril um, and Palantir would love to do as well and are actively trying to do with the U.S. state. They're not puppets of the U.S. state. They're partners with the U.S. state. Right. Right. And this mm-hmm. is this is very much how Huawei uh, this relationship is as is, 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 well. I mean, if if you know Peter Till weren't such a a, a raving sinophobe um, and, and anti-China, uh, he would look at Huawei as a, a model to emulate, right? Because they're a monopoly that has, uh, you know, a close relationship with the state, um, is acting in uh, both a, a, a very successful capitalist capacity, but acting also in this capacity of um, supporting and promoting the national interest um, mm. of, of its country, of China in this, in this respect. And these are all things that Peter Till would uh, would and has praised when American companies do that, right? right. So in, in a lot of ways, um, I don't think he's ever been explicit about this, but in a lot of ways, we could call the Peter Till model the Huawei model.
0: Yeah, you know, like Jeremy said, competition is for losers, that Peter Thiel has always been very clear on that. He believes monopolies are inherently good as economic outcomes, and they also yield positive social benefits. And they yield these benefits because if, you're monop- if you monopolize a firm, if you monopolize an industry as a firm, you no longer have to sacrifice revenues and profits on competition, right? You can then focus them instead on innovation um, and use that to develop more, um, you know, more creative and more, you know, breakthrough tech, even though in reality, right, what happens when a firm is, you know, left alone to its own devices with no competition, It just becomes a rentier, right? But that is, you know, or most firms end up becoming rentiers. Right. And that's something that's left out of Peter Thiel's, you know, mental model. Right. So I think like, you know, this kind of closes the early period of Huawei, you know, from 1988 to, you know, early two thousands. Right. You know um, at that point, there's all, it's, you know, it's important to, you know, think that like by this point, right. Uh, Huawei is well established beyond China and it's in you know most of uh, what is, you know, you know, then called the developing world, the global South, like countries that are outside of the United States and uh, Europe um, and the East Asian and uh, Northeast Asian countries that were, you know, direct uh, you know, patrons of the United States support after the Cold War. It has 45 countries in which it's operating in, 10% of all of its revenues are overseas. Uh, its industrial strategy is to uh, you know, basically leverage its low production costs as a way to aggressively undercut competitor prices, so that Huawei will come to the table and offer you a contract at a price that is well away the away ask or the walk-away price of another firm that would be uh, a traditional uh, operator, a traditional supplier, a traditional partner, right? You know one quote is our vision is to become a first-class supplier of information industry equipment in the world we want everybody to know the huawei name right i think just to speak to the you know obsession or both the obsession and the willingness to leverage whatever they have to achieve this right i think it is interesting that when faced with like of another firm doing capitalist competition right the response mm-hmm. among Washington and Western planners is to scream bloody murder, right? Mm. And that's because they uh, don't take it as seriously as they did, right? And then, not in the from the from the end of the Cold War to seventies or eighties, the United States took capitalism very seriously. The United States underwent one of the most ambitious world engineering projects in terms of creating a monetary system that preserved, you know, its ability to, to have a you know massively high. Um, standard of living for its citizens and for its patrons uh, or or for its uh, protectorates, right? You know, the United States and Germany and Japan and in the Eurozone, right? Uh, This was like a complicated system that required a lot of cooperation, you know, a lot of experimentation and a lot of like discipline to hold Fast to it, even in the face of crises, even in the face of individual countries' self-interest. Right, that sort of discipline, I think, it does. It's no longer familiar, right? When looking at yeah. firms or at a country where the the market system or whatever passes for the market system is like essentially centrally planned, one one that involves the state to a significant degree. Because the United States did that, right? The United States is a Cold War system. The United States' development of Silicon Valley, the United States' development of some of its largest entities that are enterprises or businesses that are successful are the result of like really complicated, extensive, long, like, uh, faithfully held uh, relationships and arrangements uh, to organize or protect capital flows in the direction of one firm or another. And I think, you know, one thing to always think about in law ways, like, what would the United States be saying if, like, one of our comp if Boeing was operating like this. They'd love it, right? Yeah. In fact, but, yeah. Know, in fact, well, that would fact, be good. They do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You know?
1: And 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 yeah, that's why it's held up as a major prime, right? And kind of rough and dirty history of, of this rise and fall of different forms of doing capitalism is that, right? Like like we could say that the failure of the Soviet Union is that it tried to beat capitalism at its own game, right? And that's where it failed, right? It tried to do uh, this like highly centrally planned um, state capitalism while also trying to hold fast to um, not, you know, not communism, but a kind of a, a Sovietism, right? A Stalinism um, in a way. And so the the failure in that time, at the time when, as Ed just said. Uh, the U.S. was actually taking capitalism very seriously and was pumping a lot of money into the real economy, into growth and prosperity. The failure was the Soviet Union trying to not do communism, but trying to do a bad form of capitalism. But then we can kind of flip that now, right? We hold Huawei as a representative of this. We can see China doing a doing capitalism better than the U S now. Right. Um, again, you know, it's all run by the Chinese communist party as, uh, you know, Republicans are, are always quick to remind you it's the Chinese communist party. Right. Right. But it is actually a form of highly disciplined state capitalism and one that is eating the lunch of the highly undisciplined uh, uh, form of neoliberal capitalism
0: that's happening in the US. And so that brings us to the second international push. So the first one is to try to like cultivate ties beyond uh, the immediate region in which China is and begin this time to penetrate the European market, right? So, you know, in 2001, Huawei has success. It makes its first major sales to the Netherlands and to Germany, right? To the Netherlands, it sells a wireless station that allows multiple communication standards to be run simultaneously, right? And it also allows them to do upgrades via software instead of hardware, right? Huge cost-saving mechanisms that are incredibly um, attractive. And to uh, the Germans, it offers you know optical network products, right, which are at the time called SDH, but you know just a, uh, an upgrade or a chance to do upgrades to their network as well. In France, right, in basically cold calls Neuf, right, which is the French telecom giant and internet service provider. Now, Neuf already chose the companies that it wanted to solicit bids on uh, to build a broadband internet network. Huawei cold called, pitched its firm, offered to build part of the network and run it for three months and let uh, Nuf do it, uh, test it for free, Right. They built it in less than three months. Uh, they absorbed, you know, several millions of euros in costs, and they saved the the firm, you know, ten to twenty percent on that. Right? That opens up even more doors. Then it's able to sell three uh, G technology uh, to the United Arab Emirates, right? And making that makes it the first Arab state to have it. Huawei enters the United States in two thousand one, uh, sets up shop in Plano, Texas. No fucking business, right? No fucking business for the next three years. Because um, the US, like the telecom industry in the US, was already
1: hyper saturated at right. that point. They, they're, they're mm. already so, there was already this, like, um, you know, it wasn't a monopoly, but it was more like an oligopoly, right? right. A, kind of, a kind of cartel system.
0: In fact, we have partnerships with American telecoms that are like a less competitive version of what Huawei does, and that we guarantee monopolies and also allow them to like just steal billions from the public, no questions asked, and the tax <laughs> from the literal public paying it to them, and then from them again as taxpayers. Through subsidies from the federal government,
1: when, when, when you look at public polls, <laughs> telco companies have some of the lowest approval ratings uh, right. in terms of like the public eye. Like no one, no one, no one fucking likes Comcast or whatever, right?
0: All my homies fucking hate but, Comcast.
1: But it, but but because it's an established kind of cartel or monopoly, and so yeah. So anyways, back as you were saying it, like you know they in, Huawei entered, and then yeah, those first three years not a single customer uh, mm-hmm. that they could get in, in the U.S.
0: Right. and But over the next six or seven, right, up until 2010, right, up until 2010, it basically is able to establish Plano as its headquarters in the United States, reach a dozen U.S. offices, it creates R&D centers, it hires over a 1,000 employees, it makes hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. You know, it's also trying at the same time to, you know, penetrate the emerging market for internet uh, for internet data communications, right? Cisco dominates that market at the time, uh, you know, with about 80% of the uh, Chinese router market itself, right? So Huawei, you know, leverages its familiar strategy, undercutting prices, leveraging low production costs to get contracts it might not otherwise get, right? Sometimes even giving equipment away for free, um, uses this to eventually gain 20%. of the market share at Cisco's direct cost, So it becomes 69% Cisco, 12% Huawei. And then, you know, what happens is there's a a lawsuit, right? Uh, Cisco alleges that Huawei stole software, violated intellectual property and and copyright, um, and, you know, sues them saying that, oh, you know, you guys were taking pictures of our stuff, you guys were stealing designs for our shit, like you reverse engineered our, our, you know, our patent shit. A settlement eventually happens, right? Uh, And the settlement comes over the next few years, but it's already too late. The ball's been rolling. You know, by that point, Huawei has pushed its market share even further, tripled it to about 33%, right? In 2004, back in Europe, uh, Huawei sells to a Danish company in Portugal, huge sale that leads to then a, a major 3G sale to the Dutch right, as they build out their market. They passed up Ericsson, which is like a huge and important European uh, telecommunications giant, right, and had been the main supplier of the Dutch uh, since 1998. So by the time that it's able to get this major coup, right, pushes out Ericsson, Um, it's, it's integrated into most of the major markets it's involved in either as a core part or as an intermediary or as components in some important part of the network in, in 14 out of 19 of the world's, um, 3G networks, which is, uh, you know, pretty, uh, fucking good for a company, uh, that was just entering the global market, not even 10 years ago. And really only in earnest entered Europe like three years before that, right? But this is still not really when things start to take off, right? You know, it still has to do some more consolidation in its domestic market, right? It overtakes Shanghai Bell, which was the major, uh, a major Chinese internet joint venture, right? And after taking over uh, Shanghai Bell, it begins to get ready for the later part of the second international push, right? Taps foreign markets for cash. It uh, gets a $360 million syndicated loan from 29 banks uh, in November 2004, including HSBC. Uh, In 2001, it had sold uh, a power supply subsidiary to Emerson Electric for $750 million in cash, right? And it then went back to China for more loans, right? It got $10 It got a $10 billion credit line. And it got uh, $600 in loans to cover export credits from the Export-Import Bank of China up until 2006, right? All of this goes into, again, the aggressive strategies, um, anti-competitive prices. Now, instead of 30%, they're pushing 70%, right? They're also still doing, in some places, the free product offering, right? Are offering to substantially offcut cost of the uh, network build out by just doing parts of it for free. They're also offering loans to some of their customers now. Right in 2005, their sales are have skyrocketed uh, up to um, about four billion dollars, eighty five percent more than 2003. Right, and at this point, about more than half of that jump is from overseas sales. This again continues. This is a trend that continues in 2007. Over fifty percent growth in their sales. Right, despite uh, the global financial crisis looming uh, the next year, they still saw 40% growth. They also went on to like poach employees from rivals. Uh, they continued to do the 10% uh, commitment of their uh, net profits to R&D, right? They continued uh, to also invest a significant portion of their R&D budget to creating new standards like they tried to do with 3
1: Yeah, so I mean, we can see already like 10 years after they started their real kind of like expansion outside of China. So from like 1998 uh, to 2007, 2008 era, right? In that 10 years, they had succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams in terms of like capturing market share, uh, skyrocketing its sales, right? Really large and stable revenue growth. It's hard to understate. How impressive that level of global expansion is in markets that were already quite saturated right in in telco markets and sectors that already had major competitors already had well established industries and infrastructures um, and Huawei was able to get in there through as Ed was outlining these kind of like anti-competitive practices um, which you know again a lot of the predecessor for the exact same kind of way that tech capitalism happens right now but huawei was actually able to succeed in doing it in markets that were already really tough and so really the this history of huawei and the development of huawei is itself the history and development of the evolution and development of telco, right, of these different generations of um, industry standards and of technologies. I mean, before we get into a kind of brief history of this kind of from 1G to 5G of what these different technologies and and, uh, mobile standards have meant and what they look like, I I just want to underscore for myself that you know, it's it's really interesting that Huawei was a company that I, very, I knew very little about, you know, uh, up until very recently. It was a company that, like, um, I kind of got little bits and pieces of. I was kind of familiar with the name, you know, but for being someone whose literal job is to study the political economy of of technology and infrastructure, I think there's a lot of reason why Huawei wasn't this, like, household name even to someone like me um and and I think a lot of that does come from that these these kind of like geopolitical battles and debates that we started the episode talking about they've kind of been brewing for a very long time this isn't new it's reaching a new it's reaching a new crest um with 5G but uh, this kind of like War of influence, um, this war of marketing against Huawei as being this kind of like insurgent Chinese company right that's like uh, by by moving into these markets in Europe uh, or in the u s um, it is itself the Chinese state uh, setting up inside of your phones, inside your computers, inside the wall jacks right like it, it's kind of suppressed in a weird way it's suppressed the the kind of reputation of huawei in this kind of more like symbolic or signifier way but as we've just laid out with this kind of like financial uh and and technological history of huawei's development it has not succeeded in suppressing the actual material rollout and market share capitalization of huawei you know
0: this is to their detriment right because part of this is The way that the standards were rolled out is messy, ham-fisted, in various ways, motivated by competing interests, right? You would think it would just be pretty straightforward, right? You know, from 1G to 5G, I think each standard can be thought of as, like, different innovative approaches or or increases in the capacity for data transferring. And then Uh a host of new services. And um, products coming out of that, right? You have 1G coming uh, to coming back to what, like, the tech rolled out by Nippon Telegraph and Telephone, um, the monopoly that you know, Masayoshi Sun slayed. And, you know, the coverage there, bad. Sound quality, dog shit, you know, no roaming support between operators, which meant that, you know, if you were moving away from wherever your service was, you know, good fucking luck. A different service, different systems on the same provider might even have like different frequencies, right? And there's definitely no compatibility between various systems, and there's also no encryption. So like, if you're on a phone call and I have the right equipment, I could just tune in with like a radio device. And this is like 1G, just to underscore the timeline
1: here. I mean, that this is the 80s, right? We're talking yeah. about we're we're talking about and Miami too. Vice cell phones, yeah. you know? I doubt,
0: talking... I doubt any of y'all have <laughs> no <laughs> No,
1: we're, we're talking oh. about like big old bricks you know with with the with the massive fucking like extendo antennas yeah the know. shit Johnny
0: Cochran has, you
1: know yeah yeah that's that's 1g right and, uh, and and you know the service was really poor and all that but it was also uh, you know like like any of these early innovations it was a uh, uh, it was a small market because it was really expensive right and so it was really something that yeah you would only see someone like johnny Cochran <laughs> with a with a phone like that because it was uh, you know not only was it expensive but honestly like the, the the service quality was so low that it was like man like this is not something that like normal people um ever need to fuck with
0: you know if you did um you know uh, kindly uh, send us your name and address really yeah, and- <laughs> <early>, uh, <laughs> Let, Let us know, you little early adopters. <laughs> yeah. Yo, 2G comes along in 90s and 91, specifically out of Finland, you know, and it has a GSM standard, also the CDMA standard. You know, these are just, you know, two separate protocols for, for communication between devices. You know, now we get call encryption. Mm-hmm. All right. So now you can keep your dirty little secrets safe. Uh, digital video calls or voice calls, which means much better quality. And this also opens the door because of the, the improvement in data transfer, opens the door for text messages, picture messages, multimedia messages. And that's really what allows the mobile phone technology, specifically 2G components to skyrocket because consumers and businesses, even though they're low transfer speeds are all for this shit. And this also sparks a wave of investment in infrastructure. And this is important also because uh, the infrastructure is, you know, it's it's largest mobile cell towers. Right. But it, you know, this becomes like a theme that throughout the future standards where there's money to be had, not simply in adopting it, but convincing X place or Y place to adopt it because then you can build the shit for it. Then you can build ways to connect to the shit for it. Then you can design new things to port people over from a previous standard to the new one, right? Or to offer new services that are only available on the new standard.
1: Yeah. So we start getting the, the investment and building of mobile cell towers, right? So this is really laying the groundwork for, I mean, you know, even for like the telco, like mobile standards that we have now, right? A lot mm-hmm. of these cell towers are, are really important. And I think that brings us over into 3G. There's a 10 year gap which is wild to think of. With 2G starting, um, coming around in 1991, a 10-year gap, 3G entering and being developed in 2001, um, again, by uh, NTT, which is the the Nippon Telegraph and Telephone Company. So importantly, again, you know, U.S. is nowhere to be seen in this development uh, of these standards and of these technologies. You know, 3G we get in 2001, and this is an attempt to, Um, standardize the network protocol used by vendors Um, and so what that means is that sought to let users access data from any point on earth really making it this kind of global network not a kind of hyper local where it's like you need to be really you know you need to be underneath a cell tower basically Um, and, and that makes things like international roaming services a reality Um, It also involves things like uh, increased data transfer capabilities, um, which meant new services could come online. So, you know, this is where we start seeing the rise of of things like video conferences and video streaming, you know, VoIP or voice over IP. Also, you know, that's Skype. Um, So Microsoft starts getting in on on the business, right? I, I always think of 3G as when I was growing up, I, like, for whatever reason, these commercials are like branded in my brain, but for the Magic Jack. It is
0: the new Magic Jack Plus. This is the company that invented
1: the technology of using the telephone over the internet mm. uh, this might be before your time Ed, but, I've uh, seen
0: those I've seen I've seen them on YouTube because I used to like old ass commercials just to see how weird they were compared to like how weird ours are
1: <laughs> yeah and I just remember being a kid and what and like seeing these magic Jack commercials uh, coming up on TV and it just seemed like such a such a even at the time such a weird and wild technology and I mean basically all the magic jack was is that it was a device Uh, that allowed you to plug a standard analog phone jack um, into a port which would then plug into your computer's USB port. So you could like literally take your old analog, you know, rotary phone or whatever, Plug this into the magic jack, plug that into your your computer, and now you can do voiceover uh, Internet Protocol. You can do VoIP. So like I could be sitting here on my you know on my, on my analog phone talking <laughs> to you, oh, yeah, <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> know, dialing you up, but then talking to you over uh, the computer. And and the magic jack was sold as it was one of the first technologies I think that was really sold as this kind of um, uh, telco killer. Right, you could you could disconnect your services with Bell, or disconnect your service with Comcast, or you know disconnect the service with whatever your your phone provider was, because you don't need that shit anymore. You got the magic jack, and all you need is an ISP, right? Mm-hmm. And so there we start seeing um, this kind of a shearing off of of these bundled services into kind of market segments right so magic if you know if it came around today it would obviously be using the language of it, it was disrupting the phone service business right um, it was it was making it obsolete Jeremy just put in the chat, I mean, they, they had a woman's soccer team named Magic Jack, right? And So so this is that kind of branding that we still see on soccer jerseys, right? Just imagine, you know, you're watching watching the World Cup or something like that. And, you know, they got a jersey that says Magic Jack. You're like, oh, that sounds tight. What's Magic Jack? Magic Jack to me is like this peak 3G technology, right? Because that's when we start talking about VoIP. That's when we start talking about video, con- basically doing phone stuff over the internet with right. this kind of da- network of data. At the tail end of 3G in 2007 comes the first iPhone. And that's, that's what leads us into 4G.
0: So 4G, you know, a bunch of Nordic countries, right, are involved in this shit. Um, you know, and in 2009, you know, it's pushed as part of uh, what's called long-term evolution 4G standard, right? Uh, think of it as a you know, more ambitious way for operators to communicate with one another and for systems to communicate with one another, a more ambitious protocol, right? You know, this enables really high quality video streaming uh, for consumers, fast mobile web access that we all more or less are familiar with. Um, I mean, that's what we all
1: use right now, right? We're all right. on 4G still, which again, I think underscores this this huge gap between the development of these different standards because 3g 2001 4g isn't really kicking off till 2009 and it's really not becoming a thing until much later
0: right you know i i remember like lte full lte like really like full 4g was not even like really available even what here like even the next few years after that right wasn't in High school wasn't, and then I like graduated high school 2013, you know, and they were pushing 4G more so, but it was like, the coverage was not universal and a lot of the commercials are premised on like how much better by 1% their coverage was from the competitors, right? This, an important thing is like 2G to 3G, pretty easy transition, but 4G requires new hardware, new base stations, new infrastructure, new waves of investment. I think this is part of also what spurs like the really intense marketing campaign because the, it pays to be involved in uh, establishing this infrastructure and establishing uh, the protocol uh, to be implemented because 4G services cannot be done on 3G devices. Whereas 3G devices or 3G services could be, you know, if you came you know, to a little bit on a 2G device, right. But this meant that there was a huge arena for new economic activity, but also like a huge incentive to try to figure out ways to push people onto 4G, right? And 5G, I think, is that on steroids. 5G is supposed to allow us to finally have the internet of things. You know, it's supposed to allow us to have like, you know, our trash can talk to our refrigerator, which will talk to the road outside and tell the trash pickup to come to our street or some shit like that. Right. Data transfer is supposed to be real fucking nice because the latency speeds are supposed to be lower than they have ever been before to allow for real time responses. Right. But you cannot use previous generation infrastructure for that that's why you need to have like you know the 5G base stations which you definitely shouldn't you know burn down the uk has reported around 50 fires targeting towers and other 5G equipment um you got to have the 5G <laughs> you got to have the 5G uh base stations like literally everywhere because like what is it that like a window like a thick enough window can stop 5g signals from coming through or is that the 6g shit that like no no that's 5g kind of it's like okay. yeah like the
1: signal is so weak
0: 600 megahertz 5g can travel through walls and buildings Sort
1: of like the way light travels through glass. From the window to the wall, that 5G ain't <laughs> getting in.
0: <laughs> Which is so funny because this is supposed to be like the master protocol, like right? the fucking, the key to everything. The thing that's supposed to allow us to unleash the singularity, right? Yeah, like Jeremy was saying, now you, like you'll be able to do podcast uh, engineering from your fucking, uh, what do you call it, refrigerator, right? You know, you yeah, can, your
1: Samsung refrigerator. <laughs> I'm, I'm master in podcasts. I'm, I'm, I'm using distributed computations so my, right. my refrigerator and my lamp and my clothes hanger, uh, you know, I'm, I'm using the computational resources from all of it to master this podcast. <laughs> and ostensibly,
0: <laughs> ostensibly, 5G is supposed to unleash like massive benefits, right? The idea of real-time data transfer is supposed to have huge benefits on the consumer side. For example, if you have a smart home, you probably have what? You probably have some device that is a speaker that hears you, and you have a few products that are from the same company or family of, or ecosystem that communicate to one another, right? So the extent of your smart home is an entertainment system, um, maybe a security system or you know, a.k.a. surveillance system, um, and then like some other shit that someone else convinced you to Like you know, if you're Amazon diehard, maybe you have the health shit that, uh, tracks your voice and, uh, got you, your, got body your halo, shit. Right. Your halo. There it is. Um, uh, and also the drone outside that, you know, monitors your house and then the ring doorbell, you know, so <laughs> Amazon, and then the sidewalk and then like the car cam, you know, like that, the smart house it today is really just like a big computer or like a dumb computer with a bunch of cameras that stream information primarily to, you know, services that are gonna train Alexa. So what the internet of things is supposed to do is like open up the door immensely, where now, right, you can maybe finely tune and manage all the shit in your house, right? It would be cheaper, ostensibly, and much more effective to then be like, we can put sensors in the window, we can put sensors in the refrigerator, we can put sensors in the bathroom, we can put sensors in the soil of our plants, we could put sensors at the door, we could uh, put sensors at the, at, the, at the street outside, our city would put sensors everywhere, we could put sensors on top of the building, we could put <laughs> sensors in the bathroom, and you can like have some like fucking uh, control center in your room where you're just like plugged in, you know, and you're like, <laughs> Oxygen levels are eighty nine percent. I need you know some bullshit like that. (laughs) That's that's the future these companies want for us. I mean, importantly, (laughs) that's like
1: that's like the the weird like consumer dreams of five G. But in in reality, four G was the like consumer led um generation here right that that's what allowed for mass adoption of things like smartphones and Mm -hmm. you know uh mobile data and all that but uh the the part the the real uh outcomes of 5g that we don't talk about as much because um you know it's largely marketed to us in terms of like consumers um Mm -hmm. with those kinds of things that ed was talking about right where it's like you know all your stuff can be connected but the real outcomes the real benefits to be captured from 5g are actually more uh infrastructural right it's not the smart home it's the uh it's the automated port right it's the automated factory right right? it's the smart city right those are the real uh benefits that are supposed to kind of come from 5g this is the infrastructure that, you know, the excuses are being made and I think there's some, um, uh, you yeah, I think there's some credibility to it that the reason why something like this, like the smart city hasn't actually been realized in any kind of serious way beyond uh, essentially just like consultancy, right, like management consultancy for city governments, um, the reason why Uh, you know, factories haven't been completely kitted out with robots and stuff and and why something like the Amazon warehouse with the Kiva robotics is still uh, seen as a kind of like pace setter and still kind of seen as like a a weird um, kind of vanguard of this. The reason why these things haven't been realized as, you know, uh, technologists and analysts will say is because the infrastructure hasn't actually been there to make all these things operate efficiently, to make them talk to each other instantaneously and that's what 5g is meant to to kind of bring about right which also makes it such a huge market for whoever can own the intellectual property, the patents, but also the infrastructure, the hardware um, for 5G. Whoever can roll that out, we're talking about not just a market cap that's you know a consumer market. We're talking about a, a potential market capitalization that involves um, industry, manufacturing, logistics, shipping, right? All of these things that are actually healthcare. yeah, healthcare exactly. All of these markets that. Um, are not as penetrated with automation and robotics and data and networks as much as these companies want them to be, but also markets that are so much larger than the consumer market.
0: Drones control their own drones or something. We don't know. Right. And also, I think a key thing is that Internet of Things would also really allow what companies like SoftBank want to do, which is, you know, uh, take informal activity to the marketplace, right? All this shit that you do socially, all the shit that isn't really priced properly because it's a social activity or because it's a activity provided by the state finally for the market you know i know you all want a bus you know you want a 100 utilization rate vehicle but instead how about we give you like an uber that's like you know you know 55 utilization um if you need to go anywhere if you need to go to the grocery store right instead of you know having you be able to do tasks or ask friends to do tasks what if we just had like an app for you to pay for people to do that shit like this The sort of miniature, like the the gig economy, I think is like a test case of can we turn informal activity into commodifiable goods and services that people pay money for, right? And maybe with the uh, advent of like highly networked um, cities and personal spaces and private spaces uh, and public spaces that we'll start to see like companies better able to do rent seeking which is why it's also, there's a huge incentive, right? There's huge incentive to expand those markets that already is, exist, where data could conceivably transform them and automate them, you know, if the automation is possible, but also to just like create new markets, right? And to privatize, to really privatize the rest of uh, human experience that's not already like attached to a dollar sign
1: this is also an excuse that's given as why like autonomous vehicles have always been three years away for the last 20 years or whatever, right? right? (laughs) Um, The, the excuse is that they, they were actually missing the key enabler, which is supposed to be 5g, right? Um, Right. That would allow something like autonomous vehicles because yeah, as uh, Ed was laying out, I mean, 5g is looking at having like, you know, ultra low latency. uh, And so there's a con, the, the speed at which things can communicate with each other are really quick, which are supposed to make, you know, something like autonomous vehicles, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to have all of the uh, uh, AI and computation and, and sensors and all that kind of like built into a, every individual uh, vehicle rather with 5g, it can be cloud computing. It can be cloud AI. And so you have, you know, all of this is being run by some, some like edge center somewhere where there's like a super powerful AI that is actually, you know, coordinating all of these autonomous vehicles through this like near instantaneous uh, speed that uh, 5G
0: is, is meant to allow. So I this mean, This is that, what well wanted, you know, this is, and yeah. in, in, in all his predictions, he says in the year 2021, um, 5G is going to be rolled out. And finally, we'll be able to talk to each other through <laughs> our heads through Neuralink.
1: <laughs> I mean, so that that is the kind of goal. That's the end point. That's something, you know, this development, this history of Huawei. And I think that's why Huawei is seen as such a controversial company. Um, because it has such a huge share in five G in terms of like the intellectual property, but also the real material property right. um, for it, which is meant to be the kind of underlying infrastructure for the fourth industrial revolution, for right. the great reset, right? That like right. Klaus Schwab, uh, you know, for, from you know founder of Davos and the World Economic Forum, right? Like all these things that. Uh, that these capitalists are really looking out for as like, you know, capitalism's next great
0: reset um, Mm -hmm. is built on top of 5G. And I think, you know, to take it home, there's really one last piece of the international push to get to, which is, you know, 2005, specifically the penetration of the British market because it is Britain, which, you know, we've listed off a long number of deals Huawei has already established itself as, an, as uh, into multiple frontier telecommunications uh, tech and networks, uh, but it's still unknown in various sectors of the world. And it is in 2005 when it's able to get a deal with uh, BT, you know, formerly known as uh, British Telecommunications, a massive telecom company in in Britain, right? That it's able to really step into the world stage, right? So BT has been struggling in 2005 to carry out this 10 billion pound project, right? They want to transform the country's telecom network. It's, it's analog and they want a digital one, right? The traditional suppliers like uh, Marconi, uh, which was uh, you know, a former arm of a GEC, which is another telecom giant in the country, uh, said that they couldn't do it, right? Uh, but Huawei, still relatively unknown, despite this massive amount of success we talked about, is the one that steps up, says it can do the contract, wins the contract and starts off this contract by supplying routers and then eventually transmission and access equipment, right? That is necessary for uh, Britain to aggregate customer lines, connect them, you know, and bring them into this upgraded network, right? Now, the BT Huawei contract was a disaster for the supplier that couldn't do it, McHoney, right? So their shares dropped by about 40% and this is also after a wave of post dot com bubble financial difficulties that they end up getting their assets bought up by Ericsson, right? The Swedish telecom giant that we've been talking about as one of the key european juggernauts in this in this industry right that was that has been displaced by huawei and some key networks specifically in the dutch 3g network right so it's five years from 2005 to 2010 that it has these contracts in the relationship with the uk that the british government begins to raise concerns uh that huawei is using the uh, equipment and exploiting it uh britain is claiming to have concerns that uh the core switches you know which are you know think of them as gatekeepers they're important for regulating the flow of data and information in and out of the system right you know that these switches are have been compromised by huawei right and that they are sending out secret uh transmissions of information that can't really be pinpointed uh when where you know who all this stuff you would need to you know prove something and so <laughs> so basically what ends up happening is that the british you know are voicing a fear that hey you know look um you're an arm of the chinese state uh, you're going to kill our economy. You're going to kill our network. How can we trust you? In 2013, uh, you know, as business is continuing along, the uh, the country's uh, intelligence and security committee says that you know the civil servants didn't tell British authorities uh, because they wanted the deal to continue, uh, and they also said, look, you know, it doesn't make much sense for us to try and limit the contract because China's at this point is manufacturing so much. In fact, the vast majority of the telecommunications equipment, right? So, Huawei and Britain enter a deal where the, uh, Huawei agrees to set up and pay for a cybersecurity evaluation center where British inspectors are allowed to study every piece of hardware and software that's supposed to enter uh, the UK market and infrastructure, as well as randomly sample new hardware and software updates that are supposed to end up in the UK infrastructure and market as well. So, in 2011, right? They end up flying out of Huawei's Chinese headquarter in Shenzhen. Uh, there's a meeting they have. The contents are not publicly disclosed. But that meeting is followed by BT replacing almost all of its core switches, right? And then the next year, Australia bans Huawei from its national broadband network, citing concerns raised in this British report, right? And, and the, and the uh, aftermath of an investigation into whether the core switches actually compromised. And, you know, so this gets us to where we're at, where escalation in tensions continue for the next few years, but it's really only in the last two that they've kind of, you know, uh, burst forward, right? Mm-hmm. The last two, right, in 2018, Huawei was providing, uh, you know, radio equipment to broadcast mobile network signals. Uh, and relay communications to the core networks of several operators, a third of Vodafone's, for example. And in 2016, a little bit before it shared, the global mobile infrastructure was about 26% behind Ericsson before eclipsing the company. Well, you know, getting ahead of the company at 28% uh, the next year, right? So Britain, the debate over Huawei and a ban that began to be had in 2018, uh, pushed largely by the United States, you know, is raised oh, by pointing at the composition of the mobile uh, telecoms network. They're saying, look, we have radio access, we have transmission, we have core. Huawei has nothing to do with the core. The core is where customer data uh, is monitored and routed. Uh, it's where the traffic is managed and regulated huawei has nothing to do with that huawei's equipment is instead limited to radio access and to transmission to simply carrying the data through cables uh through a system where you know sure they might control one node they might compromise one node but there's no way in hell they're going to compromise all of them one because there's too many and two because they're not the only supplier that we're using but this is not really enough to supplant Uh, fears and pressures from the United States primarily, right? This is where we start to really see the 5G uh, fears, right? One, because, you know, again, you got to remember, it's not easy to port from 4G to 5G like it was from 2G to 3G, right? Huawei is the global leader in 5G, right? In 2018, uh, the chief network of BT says, quote, in reality, there's only one true 5G supplier, and it's Huawei. Research budgets, $13 billion, 80000 research engineers, there's no fucking way they're going to supplant Huawei and create their own 5G infrastructure. They have to, right? So the concern is that if they have to use Huawei, they cannot simply just lock them out of the core of the network like they did in this time, right? And their own um, uh, Ericsson and Nokia, their own European uh, firms are not really uh, in a position to displace Huawei either, even though they're the only 5G competitor, real 5G competitors to uh, China at this point, right? Banning Huawei would mean that they have to not only prepare new infrastructure for 5G, but overhaul the entire 4G network, right? Because for even though they mitigated Huawei's uh, Capacity to cripple the network if it were to do so, right? It's still part of the network. You still have to overhaul it. You still have to overhaul it, the 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 components it sells to other people or to other suppliers that might be integrated into the network. And so it, it is a crazy proposition, and yet, right? It is insisted on by the United States to the UK, where it's uh, where Huawei's London office is the headquarters of its European operations. It's insisted to Germany. You know, it's it's insisted to France that you guys need to, you know, fuck off. Like, you got to figure out a way to get rid of Huawei because we're not going to have it. You know, they're they're a national security threat for reasons that we can't provide evidence for because either we don't have it or it's classified.
1: Picking up where Ed was leaving off. I mean, we're, we, we've tried to record this the fucking ending to this episode three times <laughs> now because my, my broadband network uh, in Australia kept cutting out. And you know what? I, I, I'm, now, I'm now a partisan for Huawei. Get this Huawei equipment <laughs> on this telco network so it fucking at least works and remains stable. <laughs> oh, man. This, is this the future Britain wants? <laughs> this mean, is, right?
0: <laughs> Anytime um, you mention Huawei, you will lose your internet connection.
1: just to underscore ed's point that i kept trying to make before i kept getting cut out of the call um britain's goal to rip out all of its 4g equipment that's you know provided by huawei and then install new 5g equipment i mean we're looking at a a, you know that's a multi-trillion pound undertaking um for them to do that and yet that is exactly what they plan to do uh by some reports by 2027 right And um, I mean, good good fucking luck to them to get away with that, Mm -hmm. because these kinds of massive infrastructure programs, um, unless you're the Chinese state, the states simply have abandoned those as projects, right? They simply do not do those kinds of projects. So this would be not only a massive undertaking, but really out of character for something like Britain to try to do. Leaving that as a as a bit of a pretend or a teaser for what comes next, I think that's going to wrap us up on this free episode, your free TMK for this week, where you know we're going to get into the premium episode and really build on this like this history of Huawei and of the uh, the telecom sector and this kind of development and evolution of uh, these mobile infrastructures, data infrastructures really start asking that question of what comes next. How is this kind of Huawei war, as Morozov calls it, this kind of geopolitical, geo-economic strife around the telco industry, how is it developing? Um, How is it tying into the last dying breaths of American imperialism as they reach out for a, a Cold War 2.0, just to, you know, mm-hmm. just to give them that, that old familiar boost that they so need to just keep to running, alive. to keep rolling, to feel alive. Yeah, just give it to them. Give it to me directly into the veins. Um, and is this going to be, you know, is 5G going to be the, the next Sputnik, right? The next moonshot, which all trajectory, all current situation as it, as it, as it exists, um, shows that, you know, America simply does not have it in them uh, mm-hmm. to win this space race, this data race. We'll get more into that in the premium episode. Subscribe at patreon.com slash this machine kills to hear that and much more analysis every single week. Um, and so until then, we will see you guys behind the paywall later.
0: Reader. They're putting them on light posts and they want to put them every two to three hundred feet for 5G. Scientists are beginning to associate it with uh, development of cancer. It's machine killed.